0: Lord Jesus, we thank you for technology when it works, and uh, and we're also thankful that it really doesn't need to work to communicate the Word of God and uh, to be in fellowship together to worship and uh, and be a part of all these really necessary things. And um, But it is nice when it works. And we pray that this morning you'd use it to better instruct your people, and that you'd speak to our hearts, encourage us, and um, yeah. So Lord, we just... Love you and appreciate you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, please be seated. So I'm not completely confident that I made my point um, last week, or at least as well as I wanted to. So I want to review some of that and then hopefully state my case a little more clearly. Uh, I haven't got a lot of uh, engagement with um, many of you over it. So uh, either you're upset with me and you're quiet and not saying anything, uh, or, or maybe just left. I don't know. But, um, yeah. So let's uh, look at some review here in regard to this relationship of ours as new covenant people with the old covenant. Now, the reason that I've, we've decided to talk about the covenants and our relationship to it is because we're currently in the book of Galatians, and Paul has been saying all of these things about the law, about our relationship to it, And he's about to move into an allegory, an illustration uh, regarding the two covenants. And he says an interesting statement in there as he's relating the old covenant with Hagar and Ishmael. And he says, what does the scripture say? And it says, get them out of here, essentially, uh, because it doesn't belong. And so I wanted to look at the two covenants, our relationship, to the old, so that the allegory of Paul just makes more sense to us. Why he would say things uh, the way that he says them. So now, we, before we look uh, at, because I, I, my primary goal this morning is is to how do we how do we use the old covenant for ethical wisdom? How do we draw from it without finding ourselves being under the law, as as Paul I think is warning us in the book of Galatians and. Uh, yeah, so let's revisit some of our stuff. Keeping in mind, as we've been talking about, that the Old Covenant, as Paul says, and the author of Hebrews especially, has been canceled, and it's been replaced by the New Covenant, and so believers are not under the jurisdiction of the law. And here's the passages that we've covered in our discussion. The, the Ten Commandments, as, as we've, we've seen very clearly from the Old Covenant, it is the Old Covenant, the Ten Commandments. As, as Moses says, about actually about five times, the Ten Commandments are the covenant, and and the Scriptures tell us that they've been fulfilled, that they've been abolished, uh, wiped out, or cancelled, depending on the translation you have, taken away, uh, annulled, or set aside, and even as the author of Hebrews says in chapter eight verse thirteen, uh, made obsolete. And then Paul says that our relationship to the law is this: we are dead to the law, and being dead to something means to end its relationship with that thing. And so he concludes we're not under the law. Uh, We've been delivered from the law, and the law has no dominion. It has no jurisdiction over the believer. So the Ten Commandments, the Old Covenant, Paul says, have been canceled, and therefore they have no legal authority over the believer. Now, that statement, it sounds odd to us because we are moral creatures uh, created in the moral image of God, and His commandments are the fundamentals of morality. Okay? They are. But the key word here uh, is legal. Legal. The Old Covenant has no legal authority over us. Okay? A, it was a legal agreement between God and Israel, and so it doesn't apply in that way to New Covenant peoples. Okay? We're morally bound, of course, to what is truly moral, but we have no legal relationship to the covenant itself. And so I think that an explanation uh, must be given for the presence of some Old Covenant commandments being found in New Covenant literature. How do we explain its presence? Now, um, I know I mention a lot of names from the pulpit and most people look at me like a deer in the headlights. Um, But I try to mention good people that you can read. Uh, Norman Geisler, uh, how many of you guys have read Evidence That Demands a Verdict from Josh McDowell? Okay, nearly every footnote in his book is Norman Geisler. So he just copied and pasted Norman Geisler's research. Okay, so you you may not know Norman Geisler, but you're familiar with his work uh, nonetheless. Uh, He's probably, He's at least one of the most influential apologists and theologians uh, of the church in the last 50 years. He died last year or the year before, I can't remember. Um, and I actually uh, was cut my teeth on a lot of Geisler's work. But uh, he also, besides writing volumes of systematic theology, he wrote a, a book on Christian ethics. And he addresses this whole issue of why we see some similarities between the two covenants or what we might say Old Covenant uh, principles stated in the New Covenant and explaining why. he, He says this, he says, just because there are similar moral laws in the New Testament does not mean that we are still under the Old Covenant. There are also similar traffic laws in North Carolina and Texas. But when a citizen of North Carolina disobeys one of its traffic laws, he has not thereby broken the similar law in Texas. He says, since God's moral nature does not change from age to age, we should expect that many of the moral laws will be the same. But this does not mean that we're still bound by the Mosaic codification simply because Moses received them from the same God who inspired Paul and Peter. Now oftentimes when I'm asked the question, I use uh, a, a little bit different illustration of two different covenants for two different subdivisions or neighborhoods. You know, those uh, subdivisions that have a homeowner's society uh, with all their rules and regulations. Uh, You know, no parking on the street, grass has to be this high, Uh, nothing. uh, Lewis County has no homeowner's society. Uh. (laughs) But each of these kinds of neighborhoods have Uh, Their own covenants. And between the covenants, uh, there are differences and similarities, but they are nonetheless two different covenants that only apply to their respective neighborhoods. And so one homeowner who lives in one subdivision is not obligated to keep the terms of the covenant of the other subdivision, even when they have similarities. They're two different covenants. And He's most certainly not obligated to abide by what is different in the covenant of the other neighborhood. Amen? And so if he does not cut his grass to the length required in the other neighborhood covenant, he cannot be disciplined for it. And if he failed to cut his grass according to the terms of his own covenant, he could not be punished according to what is stated in the covenant from the other neighborhood. So could you imagine a representative from the homeowner society of one subdivision posting violations of its own covenant on the doors of the other subdivision? What would the homeowners do? They would laugh, they would throw it away, and if it happened again, they would probably turn that representative into the police for trespassing and littering. That's actually how I feel about people that want to smuggle old covenant things into the New Testament in an unbiblical way. Paul says to Timothy, he says, there is a lawful use to the law, okay? Which implies there's also an unlawful use, okay? And to smuggle things in is unlawful, okay? Unlawful. A homeowner who failed to abide by the terms of his own neighborhood covenant cannot be disciplined or held accountable to the terms of the other other neighborhood covenant. That in itself would be immoral, Immoral, okay? Even if both subdivisions were owned by the same person and wrote up the two different covenants. Each covenant only has authority or jurisdiction where? In its own neighborhood, okay? And you guys, we're in a different neighborhood than the old covenant, okay? Yeah. The old covenant of law only had jurisdiction over Israel, period, okay? We're in the new covenant of grace, so we're not legally obligated to anything in the old covenant, even where there are similarities. If we were, we would also have to punish people according to what is demanded in the old covenant for disobedience. I think there's, I think I mentioned last week, I I believe there's 14 capital crimes in the old covenant, and some of those today would be unthinkable for us to employ. Okay, yeah. We relate very differently to these things. And we're morally obligated to what is similar only because it's stated in our covenant. Uh, Wayne Grudem, another theologian, uh, I think he's written probably the best and and most comprehensive book on Christian ethics. Really enjoyed wrestling uh, with it of late. But Wayne Grudem says this, he says, it is best to conclude that the New Testament authors reaffirmed the moral standards found in nine of the Ten Commandments, not because they thought that some parts of the Mosaic Covenant remained in force, but because they saw in these commandments clear statements of conduct that is pleasing to God for all people, for all life, for all life. So with that said, let me give you an example of one commandment uh, that is clearly stated in both covenants. In fact, those who argue that we're still subject to the Old Covenant, Uh, this is typically the one that they turn to uh, to bring us back under the law. Uh, It's not the right verse for it. Here it is. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. So notice how Paul defines uh, the commandment in verse 1. He says that a child's obedience to his parents is what? It's right, he's saying it's morally good, it's righteousness. Okay? Whether it's legally binding, though, is another thing. Okay? As we said last week, some things may be legal but immoral, as many things in America are legal but immoral. So whether it's legal or not, for a child to disobey his parents in a particular society makes no difference in this regard, the disobedient child is immoral because disobedience to parents is wrong. It's, it's unrighteousness no matter what society the child lives in. Of course, we're not talking about a child who disobeys a, a parent's immoral demands. Okay? If, a, if a parent commands their child to do something sinful, the child is not being immoral if he obeys in that instance. But when a child obeys his parents under normal circumstances he's not simply following orders he's behaving morally she is behaving righteously so the obligation to obey a parent understand it transcends the parent it's not because i said so it transcends the parent and finds its source and its authority in god himself in god himself in fact you can see it just in the nature of the trinity jesus subjects himself to his father So it's according to the nature of God and His moral order. So it's God who is ultimately obeyed when a child obeys their parents, and He, therefore, is also the one that is disobeyed, okay? So also notice the, the promise of things going well for the child and longevity of life for the child that honors his parents. Now, generally speaking, that is true. Things go well for the child who honors and obeys his parents. He'll have a pleasant and blessed life. And the opposite is true as well. Dishonor and disobedience creates difficulties for both parent and child. But understand, in the old covenant, persistent rebellion, does anybody know what that could lead to for the child? Execution. Execution. Aren't you glad that that's not in our covenant today? Okay. Yeah. But generally speaking, the child who follows his parents' guidance and wisdom will live longer on the earth. Now. This is all, generally speaking, because we live in a a fallen world where children tragically die for various reasons, even if they've honored and obeyed their parents. Now, that's all important information. But what is, I think, the defining point is what's in the last verse, verse 3, the last word which significantly departs from the promise stated in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, verse 12, Paul says that you may live long on the earth, whereas the Ten Commandments say that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord our God is giving you. You see how the verse is, the promise is tied to two different things, uh, from Old Covenant to New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, the promise is tied to the land of Israel, the promised land, just as the entire covenant is, the Old Covenant, okay? But in the New Covenant, the promise refers to life globally, globally. Now, this difference detaches the commandment from the Old Covenant to show that there is no continuity with it, no continuity, okay? The New Covenant is not an extension. It's not an addition to the Old Covenant. It's a complete replacement, Okay? The old covenant was scratched, and a new one was established in Christ's blood. So honoring and obeying our parents is morally righteous. It's morally good, no matter what covenant you belong to, and that's why you find it in both covenants. It's just moral. It's good. In fact, honoring your parents is morally good, even if you're not in a covenant, even if you're not, because there's no escaping morality, as Paul says in Romans two fourteen through 16. The Gentiles who do not have the law, they're not in a covenant with God, by nature do the things written in the law, having the law written among, upon their hearts. Okay. So they know because they're created in the moral image of God. Okay. But that's not the case, as we've stated, with resting on the Sabbath day. Resting on a particular day is not moral in and of itself. It has no more char- character at all. The only way for it to have moral significance is if God commands you to rest on a particular day. But that's not something that God has required in our neighborhood. You get it? It's not in our covenant. Now, you know, most people, uh, evangelical Christians today, they don't spend a lot of time in Leviticus, as Mike pointed out when he was teaching, but he did demonstrate that there's a lot to learn from Leviticus. And when people in the, the New Covenant uh, process the Old Covenant, there's a lot of uh, confusion and misinformation. Um, yeah, the Old Covenant is very unusual. In fact, most Westerners balk at what we call Shri Law, which is Islamic law from the government down, which is, from their perspective, a theocracy. But realize a number of things in Sharia law were drawn from the Old Covenant, okay? like honor killings. Now, it's, it's different in the Old Covenant, but there's some similarities. Everything in the Old Covenant was subject to the law given to Moses for Israel, from the God that you worshipped to how you worshipped him, from the king on the throne to uh, the baby in the crib, right? Eight days old, what, what happened to the little boys? Circumcised, whether they're atheists or not. Okay? You just got it. That's a joke, by the way. There's no atheist at eight days old. But. So from the days you worked to the day that you rest. Understand that, you know, the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments is kind of two, two laws. Six days you shall work, and in one day you shall rest. Boy, some of us are really getting away with a lot these days. We work five days. Okay, some of us. Okay. The kinds of foods you ate and the way you prepared those foods the clothes that you wore and how you wore them, and what the clothes were made of. You could not have two different kinds of material combined in a shirt. It was against the law. That creates a lot of interesting discussion. The way you sowed your seed, you could not sow two different kinds of grains together. That was against the law, and there were specific laws in regard to what you did with the harvest. Also, the animals you kept and what you did with those animals. From the the calendar feasts you celebrated to the sacrifices you offered. The way you grew your beard and wore your hair. The way you built your home and kept it clean. Your health, your vows, your relationships, your money. okay, Why you could and could not, or rather what you could and could not touch. And how you washed and cleaned your clothes. All governed by the law of Moses. It's very interesting to think about having something oversee every detail of your life. But that's really no different with the New Covenant. It's just not in a governmental system, a theocracy. Because we do agree that the the precepts, the concepts and principles of the New Covenant should govern every aspect of the Christian's life, just with no one driving a whip behind you. It's different, okay? The law of Moses was so different. Okay. You don't have to take my word for it. You can go read it yourself life. But the new covenant is so different. It's to those living in all lands. It's to those living under all forms of government and in secular cultures as ours is. Okay. So I think we demonstrated last week. It's legal to break almost every one of the Ten Commandments in America. Okay, That's, that means secular. All right. When immorality is completely legal, all right? Yeah. Those in this covenant are not regulated by days, diets, festivals, clothes, tithes, and all the rest, okay? But the new covenant does not cast off morality, because as we stated, morality is rooted in the nature of God. We've been created in that nature, and we've been called to represent his character in the world. So while there are similarities between the covenants, there is actually no continuity between them. Okay? The similarity between the two really is the God of the covenant. Okay? He's the similarity. So the old covenant was for the Jews while living in the land of Israel under a theocratic government. The New Testament, the new covenant, is for all believers of all races living everywhere in the world in any context. Okay? Every context. So anyway, I hope that explains why we find some Old Covenant commands in the New Testament. So let's get on to uh, to what I wanted to address today. Old Covenant ethics for New Covenant living. Old Covenant ethics for New Covenant living. So just because the Old Covenant and everything in it has been canceled does not somehow render it useless. Okay? There's much to learn from the Old Covenant regarding God's nature, God's heart, Okay, all kinds of practical things about life, okay? all kinds of moral and ethical issues that we can draw from for us today. Now, I know that currently there's a number of scholars and even pastors, one pretty popular pastor right now, who is communicating that uh, the Old Covenant is essentially useless, and that because we're New Covenant people, we should really pay no attention to the Old Covenant. Uh, but I think the Apostle Paul could not disagree more. Okay? For instance, as we looked briefly last week at Romans 15.4, whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Now, I think that hope is somewhat useful, especially in 2020. Okay? People have been depleted of their hope. But Paul says the things that were written before, that's clearly a reference to at least Old Testament literature. And in the context that Paul is referring to here, he, he quotes Psalm 69, 9. I mean, guys, now I know that the Psalms are not the old covenant itself, but it's from a man who was living in the old covenant. All right? Paul says that these things are there for our learning and for our hope. That doesn't sound useless to me. Again, Paul says, now all of these things happened to them. And in the context, there's talking about the children of Israel in the wilderness. He says, it happened to them as examples. And they were written for admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Boy, I hope that we're right on the threshold of the end of the age. So you guys agree? Because that's a good thing for believers, by the way. Okay. Yeah. So not only does the context here points to Old Covenant literature. It's actually within the framework of the Old Covenant because the children of Israel were behaving poorly after receiving the covenant. Well, the children of Israel generally behaved poorly after they were given the covenant, okay? That's the history of Israel. Yeah, but what happened in the wilderness with the children of Israel was, for our example, it was for our admonition. There is something To be drawn from there. It doesn't appear to be useless. But there's a more specific text that Paul gave to Timothy to instruct him as a pastor. You're all familiar with it. Paul says All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, You have to understand something, when the New Testament authors use the term scripture, graphe, they were always referring to the Old Testament literature, from Genesis to Malachi, okay. They did that because the New Testament really had not been written yet. They only had one body of scripture at that time to turn to, scripture. Now it is true, as Peter says in 2 Peter 3.16, he says that everything that Paul has written is equally inspired and authoritative as everything written in the Old Covenant. So things were being written, and it was given the same place. But nonetheless, when the New Testament authors used the term Scripture, they always meant the Old Testament, okay? Of which, Paul says, is not only inspired, which means literally in the Greek, it means to be breathed out, By God. It was Theopanusto. It was breathed out by God. So, not only is that true, Paul says it's profitable for a number of valuable things doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, spiritual maturity. That's what being complete really is. Uh, Some translations say that he may be perfect. The New King James says complete, and then able to equip for every good work. Does it seem useless to you guys? I don't think so. All right. Now some pastors may argue and say, "Well, now that the New Testament is completed, we don't need the Old Testament." I don't think so. Okay. Now as I said, this passage was specifically written to pa- to a pastor, but it's certainly applicable for all people. So, you know, what doctrine is Paul talking about? Doctrines, what doctrines can we learn from the Old Testament? Well, specifically, I think most importantly, the doctrines of God his nature, his character, his behavior, the attributes of God. You know, no new attributes of God show up in the New Testament. They're all stated in the Old Testament, okay? There's doctrines of morality. There's doctrines of justice. As, as Mike demonstrated, the doctrine of substitutional penal atonement. You're like, what? It's the gospel. It's the gospel foreshadowed in Leviticus, Fulfilled in Christ Jesus on the cross. All of the groundwork is laid there for us in Leviticus. And then the doctrines of sanctification and holiness come out of the Old Covenant. That is all very extremely valuable to us, isn't it? It's much to learn. What about reproof? Have you ever, you know, experienced conviction when you were reading things in the Old Covenant? That's reproof. Ever had the Holy Spirit confront your sin when you're reading it? you ever been jolted in your conscience? I think that's something that we need constantly. Constantly, okay? There's correction, he says. There's instruction in righteousness. Possessing what is essential for every good work. I think that defines usefulness. Usefulness, okay? The Old Testament was where the apostles often turned to instruct the church. So there's much ethical, theological information uh, that we're not necessarily obligated to but it's useful to us. So for the rest of the time together, I would like to do a couple exercises with you, okay? Don't worry Gabe, it's not physical exercise. Okay, all right. I'll never forget, we were in Peru together and we were uh, playing soccer with the kids there and, and Gabe's like, because we were playing on a concrete court, soccer, which they do there, or dirt, and uh, he's like, that's not, that's not worth getting hurt over. <laughs> Fun has always been worth it for me. So anyway, we're going to look at some of the old covenant that I believe is of value to us. Okay, Now as we look at the law, we're trying to discover the sense behind the various commands in order to better know especially the heart of God. The heart of God, I believe, comes out very clearly in the law. And we need to understand uh, that there may be no real application today from some of the law, simply because we're not Israel and we're not governed uh, by a theocracy. Okay? Also, as we search for application from the various commands in the Old Testament, uh, I think there are some pitfalls and dangers that need to be avoided. We have to be careful uh, not to interpret the text in a subjective or spiritualizing way of the text. That is, we don't want to make the text mean something that God never intended, okay? Uh, This will safeguard us uh, from faulty applications, so we don't uh, really want to be too creative. Now, creative interpretation always concerns me deeply, okay? Yeah, deeply. If we struggle grasping the plain sense of a passage uh, that leads to an application that doesn't make good sense, we should just move on so we don't entertain nonsense amen okay and there's a lot of that going on today Uh, perhaps the greatest danger of all is through your study of the old covenant is bringing yourself under the law and into the heresy of legalism which you have no business entertaining as a new covenant christian okay so we're not in search for what is binding necessarily let's look at some of these deuteronomy 22 8 when you build a house, a new house, then you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring guilt of bloodshed on your house if anyone falls from it. So, you know, this law establishes a, a building code for those living in Israel. It is, okay? Now, but this law really has no direct application in the building of our houses here in the northwest. But the heart of God is clearly revealed in the text, along with moral duty, with moral duty. Okay? In Israel, the houses were built, of course, with a flat roof so that the inhabitants could use it for living space, especially in the summer, because there was really no way to escape the heat at night. So they often slept on their roof. So God required that in the building of their homes, they install a parapet, okay? a parapet uh, is really a, a short wall that goes around the edge of the roof. What do you think it's for? So people don't accidentally fall off. Accidentally. Teenagers will always jump over that wall. Teenage boys. Okay. But parapets save lives in the same way that a railing on the edge of a cliff saves lives. Okay. But again, it's not so pragmatic for our homes here in Washington, okay. where they're not typically built with a flat roof and we don't use our roofs as living space. And if we had to build a parapet on our pitched roofs, it wouldn't just be impractical, it would be a waste of resources, right? And our homes would look ridiculous, okay? But in this command, we can see that God cares about people, doesn't he? He cares about people and their safety, and implied in the command is our moral duty to take care of or be mindful of people's safety by the way that we build things, yeah. We should build structures with people's well-being in mind. And then there's also the moral duty to establish consequences. Consequences for people who don't build structures safely by which someone, if they get injured or killed, because of it. So in the Old Covenant, God is not... Well, in the Old Covenant, God is the one who established the consequences for such careless builders. You see, the, the guilt of bloodshed implies a capital offense. If you're responsible for someone's death you could be executed for it. If injury resulted, then the person responsible is punished with equal injury. So if you fell off and lost your eye, the builder's eye would be gouged out. If they, if they lost the use of their arm, that would happen to the builder as well. Strict laws, huh? Yeah, that's, that's the way you get uh, building codes enforced right there. They're a deterrent. You see, really, after the first person is punished for it, uh, you only have to do that once a generation. And then people go, yeah, I think I should probably build morally. Okay? It's a deterrent. So what is the application of this today? Now, obviously, we as Christians are aware of our moral obligation to build things with people's well-being in mind. But who's responsible for establishing laws to regulate this? This certainly has not been put in the hands of the church. It falls better into Romans chapter 13, but that's for another time, okay? And uh, I've got all kinds of opinions about how far that should go. Let's consider another one, and I hope that these get more difficult as we go. If an ox tended to thrust with its horns in times past, and it has been made to his owner, and he has not kept it confined so that it has killed a man or woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. He knew that the animal was dangerous, very dangerous, and yet he failed to contain the animal and then somebody was killed. He bears the responsibility of that life. Okay. Again, God's heart for the safety of mankind is communicated here and also our moral obligation to contain dangerous animals intelligently and wisely. Now what comes to mind, this law always comes to mind for me when I read about a dog that has mauled somebody, caped a child, or something. And, uh, and I have opinions about what should happen to dog owners that know their dog is dangerous and yet they do not keep it properly contained. Okay, yeah. So there should be, they should be contained properly and also uh, proper consequences, just consequences should be put in place. Yeah. And when you read a lot of these kinds of laws in the Old Covenant, you just see that these are good things to make a healthy society. Amen? I mean, God is wise. He knows how to do society well. Uh, The problem is is that there's sinners involved. Now, in regard to Israel's penal system, there's this, this glaring omission, which I find to be Fascinating. Can anybody guess what it is? There are no prisons in the law. And therefore, there's no prison sentences. There's just none of that. The the law of God prescribed real consequences for people. Uh, Restitution in many situations. Public beatings for other situations. You know, I think, and I've probably said this to you before, that if I was taken out in front of the establishment, the first establishment that I robbed, and they beat me out there in front of everybody, I probably, not, I probably would not have not done it again, okay? Because I don't like anybody laying hands on me, okay? But that was probably my problem growing up. I didn't have a dad around to lay some hands on me uh, when I was so bad. But anyway, I don't want to expose too much of my position on public beatings. Uh, <laughs> good for me, maybe not good for thee, so. Uh, equal injury. In others, uh, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, that sort of thing, Uh, executions for capital crimes, but no prisons. That's a lot of saved tax dollars right there. Again, as God possesses all wisdom, and therefore his laws are similarly wise. And, And you know, if Israel had followed these particular laws carefully and faithfully, they would have enjoyed the best possible society for sinners. But we know what happened? Okay. And I think a question has to be asked, should these exact laws be followed outside of a theocracy? No way, no way, okay. I think there's great wisdom to be gleaned from the law in this, uh, in this context, but God did not intend for it to be employed outside of a theocracy. If he had, the instructions found in the various passages of the New Testament regarding church discipline, they would look very different, okay? Look very different. We would have been given instruction for public beatings in the church. And uh, I, that's not really my thing to do that. So, yeah. Uh, the severest consequences, of, as I've said before, in the church is exclusion. It's disfellowshipping people. That's as hard as it gets for us, all right? Here's another law. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. Now, this principle is also applied in the New Testament uh, in Matthew 18, 15 through 20, and then 1 Timothy 5, 19. The verse demonstrates God's love for truth and justice, doesn't it? Yeah. And so, in any serious matters to be determined, Concerning someone's guilt, we need to be careful. We need to be careful. Eliminating all doubt is our moral responsibility, lest the innocent person is punished. Is punished. We don't just need eyewitnesses. We need good and credible eyewitnesses. Yeah, yeah. Now, so far, the laws we've looked at clearly, I think, address God's heart and some moral duties that we have in various, you know, contexts, but not everything in the law is crystal clear. Let me give you some of those. You should not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Now that's pretty simple instruction, isn't it? But why can't he wait? Why can't he get his job done and then have some grain? I don't really know, uh, but I think it would be unfair to say that I couldn't eat blueberries when I'm picking them, okay? <laughs> And I think there's something more important here as with all the laws regarding the treatment of animals. These laws have more to do with us than the animal. I have authority for that one. Paul quotes this verse twice in the New Covenant, 1 Corinthians 9.9 and then 1 Timothy 5.18. And he uses it to instruct the church to provide a wage for pastors and missionaries. Paul is saying that this law is meant to teach us something about God's ethic regarding labor and wage. In other words, if God is concerned for animals who labor on our behalf, how much more is he concerned for those created in the image of God? And in the context that he gives, it's pastors and missionaries who labor on behalf of the church. He's saying if God is concerned for that, so should we. In 1 Corinthians 9.9 9 and verse 10, Paul says, Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it all together for our sake? He says, for our sake, no doubt. And here he's talking about himself and his missionary companions. In Timothy, it's about pastors. So these laws regarding animals, he's saying it has more to do with us aligning our heart with God's perspective in our relationships with people. And I think that the way Paul draws ethical wisdom out of the Old Testament is not only interesting, but it's a good example to us, okay? Yeah, we're not under the law, but the law reveals the heart of God to us. Let's look at a more difficult one. You should not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. If you have the King James Version, you might be a little confused. It says, do not boil a kid in its mother's milk. (laughs) Yeah, this law is stated Three times in the Old Covenant. Three times. Now, the Jews have historically interpreted this to mean that it's unlawful to eat a milk product with meat, so no cheeseburgers for the Jews, okay? And it's interesting because in Genesis 18, it's actually milk and meat what Abraham feeds to the Lord. He serves it. I think it would be very strange for the Lord to consume that and then condemn people for it. Uh, A literal interpretation here uh, is to be favored, okay? God was forbidding Israel from milking a goat and then boiling its babies in it. Why? Why? Now, I'll admit, it's hard to say with any absolute authority, but I think I get the gist behind it using Paul's previous understanding of the whole ox thing, okay? The idea of it is just cruel, It's kind of sadistic, isn't it? It really is sadistic. And while the animal doesn't know the difference, who does? We do. We know the difference. We know the difference. And when moral creatures lose that intuitive understanding of what is morbid, we have a problem. We have a problem. You know, sadistic forms of cruelty to animals is something that many, many serial killers have in common from their childhood. Hmm which seems to have contributed to the searing of their conscience to where the conscience is no longer bothered by evil. Yeah. People like this make little distinction between animals and people, and when these people get into power, you have things like the Holocaust. I think that God is trying to teach us something in this whole regard. I think the application here is that we as moral creatures should be very careful not to do things that would injure Or callous our conscience including the mistreatment of animals. I believe that strongly. It bugs me when I see somebody mistreat an animal. Now it doesn't bug me to kill an animal to eat it, but to make an animal suffer for fun, that means something is wrong with the human being. Something morally is wrong with them. We, you guys, want to be bothered by evil. We want, it. we want it. We want it to be an outrage within us, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12. He wants us to abhor or hate evil. It should bother us deeply. Here's another one. I love this one. You should not shave around the sides of your head, nor shall you disfigure the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor make any marks, tattoos on you. I am the Lord. What is this all about? <laughs> These were pagan practices that were practiced by the, the pagans in Canaan and the Egyptians related to their death cults, their death cults. Later on, the prophets make mention of these things in the context of paganism. Okay, so God forbids Israel to do what the pagans do. Well, today we shave the sides of our hair and we do all kinds of funny things with our beards. And in our culture, it seems that there are almost as many tattoos as guns. But are these things forbidden today? Yes and no. (laughs) Anything related to paganism is just as immoral today as it was back then. And so Christians should avoid anything and everything that associates them with paganism, with pagan religions. Paul tells us to avoid every form or appearance of evil. That's 1 Thessalonians 5.22. So Christians should avoid everything related to the occult, whether it's the clothing they wear, the tattoos, potentially the way that we cut our hair, and trim our beards. If it affiliates you with the occult, don't do that. You don't want to miscommunicate to the world who you belong to. But if what you're wearing or doing has no relationship to paganism, and it isn't inherently evil, there would be no prohibition to shaping your beard, shaving the side of your head, and to some of our parents' dismay, getting a tattoo. Now, I know that some Christians can get pretty down on tattoos, but there just isn't anything in the scriptures to condemn it, to forbid it. Okay? As, as you can see, it's mentioned in the same context as cutting your flesh which is the exact thing that we do to our little girls when we pierce their ears, right? Except we pierce everybody's ears these days. (laughs) How many of you guys got your ears pierced, gals, for pagan reasons? (sighs) I'm really glad. Okay, because we have disciplinary action for that. No stonings, though, no rock parties. Okay. (laughs) We can't reasonably forbid one Without the other let's be honest with the text okay and besides I actually like a lot of tattoos when they're done well and I use other people's tattoos all the time for sharing the gospel okay I like them Uh, I don't have one but generally speaking I don't have a problem with them I went in to get a tattoo on my ring finger there's my confession uh, it was going to be Hebrew, Oni Ledodi, which means I am my beloved's. That's shandy, okay? Uh, but they talked me out of it because they said the letters would probably bleed together and just be a smudge of black. So I didn't get a tattoo yet. <laughs> now, I have had young people come to me and say, hey, Pastor Ben, my parents say that it's wrong to get a tattoo, but what does the Bible say? The Bible says to obey your parents. (laughs) So until you come out from under their authority, right, later on you can paint yourself silly, okay, but for now uh, you're under their authority, so just hold off and maybe continue to hold off out of respect for your parents, amen? Because I'll tell you what right now, tattoos are not that important, they're just cool. When they're, when they're done nicely, when they're done nicely, yeah. Okay, so there's just a sampling. There, there are, they say there's about 333 laws in the Old Covenant, most of which I do not want to cover with you, okay? Uh, especially not this morning, uh, yeah. But as you research them, as you study it, okay, remember, you're not a constituent of the Old Covenant, in no way, shape, or form. You have no legal obligation to it. There's much to learn there about God, about doctrine, about ethical wisdom, but you're not under the law. Okay? You belong to the new covenant, which is superior in every way. Have you read it? My goodness. And what is recorded there is our primary concern. Okay? My computer froze. Roger, you're fired. Is that the one I want? Let's move to this one. Be diligent to present present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing, that is interpreting, the word of truth. Now, the passage specifically applies to pastors, but its broader application is to all believers, okay? The new covenant is our life, and that's why typically at Calvary Chapel, we study it Verse by verse, okay? Chapter by chapter, book by book, because it is the whole counsel of God that we desire, okay? The whole counsel. We need to know it, we need to understand it, and we need to be depending upon God's grace to live it. Amen? Okay, why don't you stand up and we'll pray? And you might be saying, well, what is the new covenant? The new covenant is everything stated. In the new covenant it's it's as simple as looking at the old covenants when the jew read from the old covenant he understood this is my covenant this is my obligation before god this is how i live when we look at the new testament the literature especially in the epistles we understand this is how god has called me to live in this covenant i belong to him and he communicates all those things there yeah oh yeah roger were you supposed to announce the christmas dinner Uh, We're having Christmas dinner here, and uh, so we're gonna do, but we need some help afterwards with getting it cleaned up and some help managing it. So who's bringing what and how much and and all the rest, amen? And then I forgot to announce, um, we're having an apologetics conference here in January 30th and 31st, and we're having um, Alan Schlemmen come from uh, Stand to Reason, and uh, the idea is to uh, inform and equip the, the people of Calvary Chapel regarding the things in our culture right now. And so he's going to come and he's going to talk about uh, the confidence we can have in the scriptures, and then he's going to address the, the gender issues right now, homosexuality and abortion. So no hot topics at all. it uh, <laughs> be rather boring. Uh, and then he's going to talk about how to engage with people in the culture on these subjects um, for... The sake of their salvation. All right? So we'll keep promoting that and putting it out there. I'm excited to have Alan here. Uh, Talked to him on the phone last week. Seems like a real practical fun guy. And uh, we have another conference in March, but we'll address that later. Let's pray. All right. Well, Lord, um, I don't think that your word could be stated more clearly in regard to the covenant that we do not belong to. And the covenant that we do belong to, and where our major priorities lie. So Lord, I pray that you would open our understanding up, especially to the text of the New Testament. And that what is stated there, what is instructed there, would become our bread and butter. And that we would give our lives to it, Lord, by your grace. So Lord, continue to teach us, and, um, and make us more like you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's keep worshiping.